Well, good morning again. I'm overhearing like trapeze is kind of going to be happening. Um, wood carving, I don't know. That's, that's what I heard from you guys. So I'm, I'll look forward to that at our talent show. Uh, my name is Kevin, uh, and my role in our community is to serve as one of the pastors. Uh, and this morning is a good morning because it is the day that the Lord has made, and we get to be glad in that. Uh, it's a good morning because together in community, we get to open up God's word together. So would you take your Bible that you brought with you this morning and join me in Hebrews chapter 3. Um, if you didn't bring a Bible with you or you don't have a Bible, um, I think if you throw up your hand, we'd probably find a way to get you one. Uh, some of you have it on your device, but it's good to have your Bible open. So you know I'm not making this stuff up. Um, in honor of God's word, would you stand with me? Did I tell you where to turn? Hebrews chapter 3. We're in Hebrews chapter 3, and we're going to start at verse 1. I'll give you a second to find that there. It's near the end of your Bible, you know. Hebrews 3, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling... Fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house, and we are his house, if we indeed hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. So Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in many times and in many ways and in these last days have revealed yourself to us through your Son. Lord, as we come to this text, um, Lord, I pray that you would speak. Lord, as we prayed last week, Lord, that nothing would be made known this morning except Christ and him crucified. This is our calling. And so we pray these things in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen. I invite you to take a seat. God is so kind and gracious to us, isn't he? Do you know, uh, when we were sorting out the texts for this series, we placed them in the calendar, and because this is a series, this Think About It series during the summer, it's a bunch of kind of one-off sermons because we know you go away and you come back, so we didn't put a tremendous amount of thought into the sequence of the messages. Um, I knew that I'd kind of preached two weeks in a row, but didn't really intend that last week's sermon and this one would have anything to do with one another. So, lest you boast in me, or in anything else except Christ and him crucified, know that it was God's goodness that led us to this text. It was like a follow-up to last week's text. 
Um, last week, if you weren't here, we looked at the embarrassing way that God has called us to himself, or what we find embarrassing, but is actually liberating. Well, this morning, as those who share in that heavenly calling, we are going to pay attention to what our response should be. As those who boast, as those who put our full weight of significance upon Christ, what should we do? Uh, this morning, guided by God's word, we're going to think about why it's so important to think about Jesus. Uh, the author of Hebrews is going to show us how beautiful Jesus is. And as he does so, we're going to be reminded what Jesus has done as a human, what Jesus has done as God, and why those two things make him the uniquely safe place to fix our thoughts. So his response to us being called is, fix your thoughts upon Jesus. This will be good. Um, now, before we get to those three pieces of the author's argument, it might be important for us to think about why he is writing this in the first place. Um, we can gather some clues from the text surrounding it. The author who writes this letter to the Hebrews, and we don't totally know who that is, uh, understands that for this group of Christians, probably in Rome, it was becoming harder and harder and harder to be a Christian. In chapter 2, he goes on to show us how beautifully true it is that Jesus is truly, fully, completely human. So human that he was tempted and suffered from temptation so that, you won't believe this, so that he is able to help those of us who are tempted. That's good when we can finish there. <laughs> so he says, so Christians who are in Rome, in Rome where it is not easy to keep your attention on Jesus, to keep focused on Jesus, it's not easy to be a Christian at all, when you are tempted to give up the faith, think about Jesus. And he is going to help us think about the importance about thinking about Jesus. So what does he say? Jesus is called here two things. He says it's, he is our apostle and our high priest. And most of you are probably really familiar with what an apostle and a high priest is, right? But in case you don't, we'll go through a little bit of what each one is. And do you know this is the only place in the entire New Testament where Jesus is called an apostle? Uh, we have other places where we hear about apostles. Uh, in the New Testament, um, who are the apostles? Who are the apostles in the New Testament? Yeah, Joyce has got the list down. Uh, the, the, primarily, we've got the 12, right? Um, and then there's others added to that, that group. All through the New Testament, we, fee, we see there's other apostles as well. And these are people, Paul is listed among the apostles. These are people who have witnessed the good news of God in the person of Jesus. These are the ones typically who have seen and sat under the teaching of Jesus, and they go about proclaiming it. Apostle is one who goes and proclaims the good news about Jesus. So simply, Jesus is our apostle. Jesus is the one who witnesses to us to proclaim to us the good news, or we call it the gospel. It's what good news is. Um, and Jesus, I bet Jesus comes to, to, to proclaim the good news. Like that, you can't like argue with that in scripture. Um, this book of Hebrews opens with that line. It says, in, the last, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. 
Um, we've spent the last couple of years in the Gospel of Matthew, where we've seen how all Jesus does is go about proclaiming the good news. Uh, we see him quote the prophet Isaiah in Mark's account, where he says, the spirit of the Lord, in Luke's account, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. He has set me apart to do what? To preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release, freedom, forgiveness to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He is our apostle. He is the one who tells us the good news. He's also our high priest. Now, in our church, uh, we don't use the language of priest, um, but you may recognize it from other places. And what is a priest? What does a priest do? Well, typically, the role of a priest is to intercede, to stand in between, to stand in between God and humans. But when you think about that, it's less like a gatekeeper, like the person who gatekeeps between God and humans, but more like an ambassador who goes in between the two to tell each other about the other. In the first part of our Bibles, um, we see what the high priest is drawn out in really tedious details. <laughs> um, if you have ever read through the Bible and you got stuck in Leviticus, and I know some of you have, um, being stuck there may have caused you to not notice the beautiful ways that the high priestly role is described. But all of the symbolism of this high priest, this person who was supposed to go into the tabernacle on behalf of the people, all of that was to tie in this imagery of this person in the in-between role, the person to stand in between. Once a year, he'd go into the center of the tabernacle, like this concentric circle where the, the most holy places in the center, where God's presence was most strong. And once a year, he'd go in there on behalf of the whole nation of Israel to represent them to God. So if you read in those, all those details, you'll see on his chest, he wears the names of all the tribes of Israel. He goes to represent them to God. He'd wear their names into the presence of the Lord, and through obedience to God, through sacrificial offerings, they would have their sins atoned for, covered over, forgiven, no longer held against them. And the high priest not only wore the names of the people of Israel on his chest, but he wore another name on his forehead. It's the name of the Lord. The name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Because he represented two people. He represented the people of Israel to Yahweh. And he represented Yahweh back to the people of Israel. You can see what I mean when I say ambassador rather than gatekeeper. And... If you want to get a, a deep look at this, just read through the book of Hebrews. This theme is interwoven all throughout there, um, which we don't have total time for. But what we can see is that Jesus is our high priest. Truly human like us, like every high priest, every high priest would need to be human. Because how else could he represent humans without being a human? Does that make sense? How could he stand in our place without himself being human? And I think that kind of makes some sense to us, right? Uh, some of you kind of maybe have backgrounds or uh, just the world that we live in, you're familiar with kind of this idea of the universe, of New Age kind of spirituality, where there's a general, general spiritual forces that care for you, um, where you kind of just hope that things will work out if I kind of say it out. Um, 
And that might be like a comforting prospect. And I think saying, like talking about those things, it can feel maybe warming to your soul. But the universe doesn't know what it's like to be hungry or rejected or abandoned or even what it's like to enjoy a great meal with friends or to celebrate an accomplishment. Jesus is our apostle and our high priest. He's the one who proclaims good news to us. And in his very self, he shows us that this is good news. Being a human, he can understand every single part of our experience and then bring good news and the presence of God into it. And it says here that he was faithful to the one who appointed him. He was faithful to God, just like Moses. Okay, so the church hearing this letter, when he said, just like Moses, they'd be like, wow! Faithful like Moses? Moses is the best. I never realized until now that Jesus is faithful in like a Moses level of faithfulness. That's amazing. Fix your thoughts on this Jesus. Now I think our temptation here is to stop. Um, and I think the Roman church receiving this letter might also be tempted to stop because this is a great message, right? Jesus proclaims good news. He reconciles us to God and he was faithful to God. I should be faithful to God like he was. I'll probably never make it, but he's a great leader to model my life after. He was faithful to God like Moses was. I should fix my eyes on him. That makes Jesus a fantastic option to model my life after. But this is where we might say, you know, even though I think he's the best of options, I get that not everybody will feel that way. Everyone has their own leader of their life, and that works for them, right? After all, there were other apostles who were human, and there were other high priests who were human. Yeah, I think Jesus, I think he is the best of them. I mean, he's an apostle and high priest. Who else is that? But Look, right here, Moses was faithful, too. So I don't think Moses is the best choice. But someone following Moses as their leader will probably still do all right, because Moses was awesome. It's a question I hear far too often. Who am I to come in and tell someone that their religion, that the God they follow, that the way that they live their good and happy life is wrong. They seem to be doing just fine. <laughs> we had our youth year-end barbecue a few weeks ago, and during our barbecue, I learned that apparently, when it comes to sparkling water brands, that there's a, a big difference between AHA and Bubbly. I don't know if you're familiar with this. This is news to me. Apparently, they are not the same. I had no idea. But apparently, there's only one right choice, and apparently, it's bubbly. Um, apparently, it's such a big difference. I won't tell you who, but it, it seems like some of our youth might not even come back next year if we served the wrong one. I'm just saying. Isn't it, isn't it true, though, that even as Christians, we sometimes view our faith as something similar to that? That our preference, it's obviously the right one. Bubbly is obviously better. But even though I wildly disagree, I can kind of understand that others still might think things through differently. 
because ultimately it's sparkling water with some flavor in it. The term for that is called pluralism, and that's precisely how Roman society operated in the early centuries. Rome had conquered so many different nations and empires that they weren't really concerned about which god or gods you worshipped. They only really cared that you paid your tax, didn't disrupt society with your beliefs, and that you just added the Roman gods, the Roman spiritual way of life, to your own religious experience. That's, of course, what got our first century brothers and sisters in trouble. Because for them, Jesus was not just another option of a god, but rather the sole person in whom to put their allegiance. So in reminding us to think about Jesus, the author here makes an important shift. He knows that after all of this talk about Jesus' perfect and miraculous life as a human, we might get confused. <laughs> so he helps us with two metaphors. And at this point, uh, oh, and his point, sorry, is that, yes, his humanity, in his humanity, Jesus has accomplished the same roles as the others have. He's accomplished the high priestly role and better. He's accomplished the apostle role and better. But don't be confused. <laughs> he's not just better. He's in an entirely different category. In this passage, we're not ever meant to think less of Moses. The church's reaction, like, wow, Moses! That was a correct reaction. Moses was faithful. But Moses was operating in a totally different category than Jesus was. We have been thinking about our church building quite a lot recently, a lot more than we ever do. Um, as you can tell, we're in the midst of some sizable renovations. Uh, our speaker on Wednesday said going to the bathroom kind of felt like a camp experience uh, with just the plywood over top of the windows. Um, as we've talked about this building, though, uh, do you notice something? Uh, we keep remembering those who came before us when this place was called Austin Avenue Chapel. And we talk about the church who began to invest in this building and in us 60 years ago. Now, can we say that the roof has kept us dry for many, many years? Yes, of course we can. Can we say that the cladding was faithful in preventing rodents and drafts? Yes, but we, we, don't, we never say that, do we? <laughs> what we say is, wow, the faithfulness of those who prayed for us and invested in this building for us, that's beautiful. Because buildings are great, but the person who built the building, do you see that they're not just simply better, <laughs> they're just in a different category altogether. The author of Hebrews says this precisely. Oh, oh, yeah, both Jesus and the other apostles proclaim the good news. Yeah, both Jesus and the other high priests intercede between me and God. Yeah, both Jesus and Moses were faithful. And yes, in one sense, Jesus was better than they were at each of those jobs. But you need to understand, he wasn't just better. He was in an altogether different sphere. Moses was faithful in the kind of way that your home is faithful. It's faithful that it keeps the outside outside and the inside inside, to borrow Scott Teeson's words. Jesus was faithful in the kind of way 
that designs and contracts and pays for and builds a house that keeps the outside outside and the inside inside. Well, Kevin, who does more to care for the home, the house or the builder? It's a ridiculous question, right? The, uh, everything about a house finds its source in the one who builds it. Everything good about the house is the result of the architect placing it there. Moses was profoundly faithful, but he was faithful because he was part of the house that God, who is faithful, was building. Don't be confused. Jesus is faithful like Moses was faithful, but they're both faithful in vastly different ways. Okay, maybe building metaphors don't connect with you. I don't know. The author picks up another example, although it's similar, so we don't get confused. He says, this time, he says that, yeah, absolutely, Moses was faithful. Uh, do you remember, if you don't remember what Moses did, Moses was the person who helped lead the people out of slavery in Egypt, trusting God when he felt like he had no power to do so. He was weak. He said, okay, I'm going I'm to follow God and lead these people out of slavery, brought them into the desert, and heard the word of the Lord that helped to design the whole system of the priestly sacrifice so that God, so God would dwell with his people. Moses was faithful. He spent his whole life serving this group of people who weren't very kind to him. Uh, so he is faithful. But Moses was faithful in the way that a servant in a house is faithful. Jesus is faithful in the kind of way that the son in a house is faithful. Uh, I don't know if any of you have servants in your house, um, but just so you know, this text, it's not actually degrading the role of a servant. Uh, most of you actually do have servants in your house from time to time, in what this text is meaning. You just call them contractors, right? Because most of us are also servants in other people's houses. The metaphor has nothing to do with class or status, but ownership and intent. So Moses here is like a good kind of contractor that you want. Whether he is there to carefully route and design good plumbing, or to do intense mental work of crafting good support beams, the skilled work of landscaping the yard just right, whatever his job is, Moses is the kind of guy you want. He's faithful, and he does it right, honest, hardworking, doesn't cut corners. But I know a lot of you work in professional industries, and have you noticed that you kind of become the picky homeowner that you really hate <laughs> when somebody else comes into your house to do the same job? Not because you're suddenly more detail-oriented. It's because you know that you're going to live in that house long after that contractor is gone. Uh, you can ask Greg Needham, our project manager, what it's like to uh, work alongside me in this project, because I've noticed I, I really enjoy seeing what's going on, and my dad is uh, one of the most technically skilled people I've ever met, and so I, like, my whole life, I was like, oh, how do things work, and, but I'm not very good at it, but I'm always curious, so in this whole building project, I keep looking at my window, oh, what's going on now, and I've noticed something, though, that every, every decision that gets made, I'm like, oh, why are we doing that, oh, is, is, how's that going to work? Is that, is that and I care just so much. <laughs> um, why? <laughs> well, because I intend to be here a while. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm invested in you folks. God's called me to serve here, and I intend to serve here just as long as he asked me to. So when I see a new window go in, I'm not just thinking about the end of this project. 
I'm thinking about how that window placement might be helpful in 10 years' time. Now, don't worry. Uh, every detail that I've ever worried about, there are more like, skilled people who are actually worried about it, and they've, they've already dealt with it. So lest you think that I am the thing keeping this, <laughs> that would be a disaster. <laughs> I just noticed my point being, when you're invested uh, in the running of a home and in the longevity of a home, uh, like, like your daughter, who's going to inherit it from you, will be. You just are naturally going to be faithful to the place in a totally different way. Part of that is, again, because you're in a totally different category. The hired contractor who is working in your home is only doing what the homeowner asks them to do. A faithful contractor is one who does what the owner of the home asks them to do. The owner of the home is faithful in a totally different way. He is faithful to the purpose and longevity of the home. Oh, Moses was so faithful, but the home wasn't his. He was just doing what he was told to do by the homeowner. Jesus is faithful in a totally different way. He's not the servant of the homeowner. He is the son of the homeowner. And he can give instructions to the contractors because he knows what his father wants to do with this home. They share the investment and the interest and the intention for this home that Moses has been faithfully serving in. It's kind of weird to say that Jesus is better than Moses in the same way that it would be weird to say that Lynn is better than the cupcake she makes, right? It'd be a weird comparison. It's like, well, those are very different things. <laughs> her cupcakes are amazing and Lynn's amazing, but to, to compare her cupcakes to her, like, she, and she makes, anyways, that, that's what Paul is saying. He's like, Moses is fantastic, but he, Jesus is in a totally different sphere. Does this make sense? The reason Jesus is in a different category altogether is because he's not only truly human, but he is truly God. He says that if you have seen him, you have seen the Father. Do you see why this is good? It's so critical that Jesus is like us. Because how else could we find freedom from our weaknesses and temptations and struggles and pains if he didn't know what it was like to be human? How could we have any hope of living like a God who's only spirit? We, it's like, well, what does a spirit do when they're faced? Well, they don't face temptation. Um, I don't know how to do this. But as truly human, he can truly communicate the character of God to us and then rescue us out of the humanness, the human mess that we've made. And so it's really critical that Christ be both like us and also unlike us. Because how could any human bear the weight of salvation forever for whoever would believe in them? It is such good news that Christ is in our world, but not stuck inside of it. How many of you get carsick or seasick? Yeah, a few scared hands. Isn't it the most awful feeling? I hate it. Um, I mostly don't get carsick, um, except sometimes, you know, when you're on the bus, and some, sometimes there's bus drivers who just love the gas and the brake. And so the moment 
then the light turns green, it's like full speed, like accelerating right up to the stop sign and then slam on the brake and then you're like <laughs> And those are always the days that I've needed to, you know, do my readings before getting to class. Like, I can't do the readings today because this is terrible. Um, do, you know, do you know what causes car sickness? From what I understand, it's caused when the various way, like all your sensory systems, it's when your sensory systems don't line up with the information that they're getting. So you're in the car, and the fluid in your inner ear is telling you that you're going around corners and uphill and downhill and starting and stopping. But meanwhile, your joints and your muscles are feeling like a little bit of jostling motion, but they're also telling you that you're sitting in a chair. And your eyes, they're reading maybe a book. And from their perspective, everything is still still and stationary. So what are you supposed to do if you're prone to car sickness? I heard a good little mumble there. Um, I'm going to assume that one of you said, <laughs> you're supposed to look outside. <laughs> look outside so that at least your eyes can start to see what's actually going on in the environment around you. To remember that the entire grasp of reality cannot be captured from just within your car. You need to look outside the car to actually know what's actually going on. That's similar to grounding exercises for those who experience anxiety. Anxiety or panic attacks are like more than just worrying. Often panic comes from the sense that you don't know exactly why you're worried. You just know that everything's at risk. And it can be really helpful in a panic attack to do exercise that also do the same thing, that pay attention to the surroundings that are outside our own internal experiences to pay attention to what you see, what you feel, what you smell, what you hear, what you taste. These remind you that, the, that outside the internal chaos, there's a reality that is larger and greater, and we're going to see far more secure than you are. So fix your eyes on Jesus, who is both in our world and stably outside of it. Okay, now check this out. We've gone through a few housing metaphors, and maybe you weren't super into that, but there's a reason. Those weren't random, because in this metaphor, do you see what he says? We are that house. New Testament professor at Regent College, uh, Dr. George Guthrie, uh, he's going to be serving us by preaching later this summer, uh, and I can't wait for him to be here. He is an expert in Hebrews. Uh, so you can ask him about everything that I preached, and oh, well, that was weird. Um, but his faithful study of this text has really been encouraging to me and helpful. And Dr. Guthrie sees in this passage a reference back to 2 Samuel 7. This guy, you are this house. Okay, why all the housing stuff? There's a reason. It wasn't just a good metaphor. Does anybody know what's in 2 Samuel 7? This is where David... Looks, he's built this beautiful palace for himself, and he looks around and he goes, I live in this beautiful palace, but God doesn't have a house. God doesn't have a cedar house like I do. Uh-oh, I've messed up. I need to build God a house for him to dwell, because he's still in this tent, this tabernacle. And uh, so he goes, okay, let's do this. And his, the prophet Nathan says, you know what, David, you're a great guy. Might as well do it. Of course, what could be wrong with this? 
But Nathan goes to sleep that night, and God says, no, 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 David's not supposed to, to build me a house. And there's much that goes into this, but uh, God says, all this time I've been dwelling in a tent alongside my people. Why do I now need a house? He says, Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over, David, and when you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. Your own flesh and blood, I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and ever. Look, friends, God desires that we be brought together with him, reconciled, brought back together. And in Eden, the Garden of Eden, you remember the story, we see God dwelling with his people. He used to like walk with them in the cool of the day. Heaven and earth was united. Yet, because of our own desire to be our own God, we enslaved ourselves to the kind of hell of a world where we are actually in charge of things. Now, fortunately, God still intercedes in the midst of this because God has not abandoned us. From the very moment we sinned and all the way back in eternity past, God has loved us. Do you see, as you turn through Scripture, these repeated themes? Um, I don't know if you know, but in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, they're kind of a set. And apparently, the most important part of that whole five books is Leviticus, <laughs> where God gives all of the instructions for the tabernacle. And it's like, well, that's a weird place to make the most important. That's the place I skip. But right at the center of that initial story, God demonstrates how he is going to dwell with his people, how he will be with his people, because he will not abandon us to ourselves. So enter the high priest and the whole sacrificial system. Unlike all the chaotic gods around them, Yahweh tells his people how to follow him. And in so doing, he trains them and shapes them into a people that would look like him. And then the theme continues, if you look for it. All through the prophets, we see this refrain. They will be my people, and I will be their God. So then, when we see David, and God promises David that he will establish his house from his own descendants. Do you remember who Jesus is a descendant of? He's a descendant of David. And as a descendant of David, God says he is going to establish his house through Christ. And you are his house. How can this be? Well, in light of Jesus, we're told that his spirit, his very self, dwells in those who trust him. The people of God are becoming the dwelling place of God. Friends, God is not done in his faithfulness. If we look to Revelation chapter 21, which is the culmination of all of history, John writes down for us, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, look, 
God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, because these words are trustworthy and true. Talk about trustworthy. Talk about faithful. Talk about true to his word. Have you ever seen someone so committed to do what they said they would do? From eternity past to eternity future, the Lord has said, I will dwell with my people. And what has his thing been? Consistently, I will be with my people. I will not give that up. I will consistently be with my people. That is the beginning of the story and the end of the story. There is no change. Not only do we have in Christ someone who is the kind of Savior we need, able to both relate intimately with us and be something so outside of us, that's, that's great, that's the type of Savior we need, but not only is he that, he is consistent, he is stable, he is unchanging, he does not shift like shadows, and praise God that he has chosen to make us his house. We are his house. Our world has many other places for us to fix our eyes. Um, I'll tell you, this week, I spent a lot of time in this text, and I felt like my message last week about trusting God in our weakness, I was like, I don't know if I, I know how to preach this text. Lord, I think there's still so much more for me to get from this. And in my weakness, I realized how quickly it is to turn to so many other sources. Like, well, okay, you know what I'll do? I'll go for a run. You know what I'll do? I'll go, like, eat some more food. I'll snack. You know, I'll have a nap. I'll just, like, scroll Facebook videos for, for hours. All of these things. And here I am preaching this text. <laughs> Fix your eyes on Jesus. Like, yeah, well, I will. Once I can finally like, distract myself out of this whole thing. <laughs> it is hard. But, oh my goodness, is there any other better place to turn? How faithful is Facebook? <laughs> How faithful are the stories of Netflix? How faithful are even the people who are most faithful? How faithful was Moses? How faithful is your finances or your retirement plan? Even this building... <laughs> The Lord has been faithful forever and ever and forever will be. What other place could we fix our attention? What other place could we fix our eyes? He said he is going to make a house, a dwelling place for his people, and we are that house. Now, there's a line after that, if. And friends, in my humanness, I wanted to skip over this line. He says, we are his house if we hold to the confidence of the faith that we hold. But that's only because I, I misunderstand God's mercy for us. <laughs> I don't like the place where it's like, but we're only his house, we're only his dwelling place if we trust in him. 
Because sometimes I think I'm more merciful than God is. May that never be true. God in his mercy has said we are his house if we hold fast to the confidence of the hope of glory. There's a condition for us being his house. And that's not because God's love is conditional. We learned that last week. But because part of being someone transformed by Jesus involves actually being transformed by Jesus. Um, often, when we kind of go, I wonder if I, like, am I a Christian? Am I a follower of Jesus? Am I part of his house? Often kind of our, our trained answer is like, well, I said this, this prayer once. <laughs> Haven't really done anything about it since. <laughs> but, you know, that's kind of like, prayed that, I've done that, checked that box, and I'm done. The moment of our salvation is profoundly beautiful. And like that, that conversion moment, for many of you, it's like, oh, that is a place where you should hold an anchor and go, wow, that is fantastic. But the message of Scripture is, is that we have been saved. We are being saved. And Hebrews actually says, and one day we will be saved. <laughs> Jesus is coming with his salvation with him. Uh, this is uh, actually not to fill you with the concern of I don't know, am I actually a Christian? But actually, hopefully, to relieve you from some of that. Because uh, if it's just based on this prayer that we pray, prayed, you might spend your whole life going, I don't know if I was sincere enough. Um, if you've grown up in the faith, um, maybe like me, you came to about 35 different altar calls. Like, I don't know, I don't know if I was actually a Christian then. I better do it again, because God will save me based on my sincerity. No, God saves us based on his faithfulness to him. And part of the demonstration of his faithfulness to us is our reliance upon him. What does it mean to trust in Jesus? It's to trust in Jesus. To lean all of our weight upon him. To hold that confidence secure. And this is important in a world where it's hard to follow Jesus. <laughs> in a world where there are so many different places where you can fix your eyes where there's this message that it might be insensitive to actually believe that God is as good as he said he is. <laughs> to hold fast. Paul says to these people who are tempted to give up, he says, you know what you got to do? You got to look at Jesus. And as you look at him, see what a beautiful savior he is. And rest in confidence in the fact that he has done this. And if you find yourself trusting in that <laughs> and resting in that, there's good news. You're, you're part of his house. <laughs> And he has been faithful, and he's not going to give up on you. Who else is like this? What? No other worldview or religion has a God who is like this. No person, no retirement scheme, no career. Um, I'm going to invite the music team to, to come up. Um, Friends, there is no better choice than you can make than to fix the language to rivet your eyes upon Jesus. Not only will his goodness and love thrill you, he is an unmoving anchor, a solid location to set your trajectory against. As our apostle and high priest, he stands in the unique position of being able to accurately represent us before God and accurately represent God to us. And we are united with him. But with the author of Hebrews, I'll emphasize again the if. 
if we actually do decide to answer his call of salvation, we can experience this hope. Some of you haven't done this before. Some of you have trusted in Christ, but the evidence of your life might suggest that you maybe don't trust Jesus. So with Hebrews, I say today, if you hear his voice, turn to him. Rivet your attention upon him. Christians are people who recognize that there is no better place to look than the one who is faithful throughout all of the ages. So come, let us behold this glorious God together as we respond in song.